Welcome, welcome to the Hyper Guy Motivational Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. I have a great guest today. My guest today is Dr. Glenn Gallimore, who lives in Las Vegas. And uh, so he attended the University of Santa Barbara, has his BA in economics. After he received his undergrad degree, he went on to the University of San Francisco and where he received his uh, degree in dentistry. And then he went on to start his own practice and he has a successful practice in Las Vegas and he's doing amazing things. And he's really, really, his, his stories is, is very, very inspiring. Somebody that I look up to. Welcome, Glenn. Thank you for being here. Yes. Thank you, Martin. It's, it's good to see you. I, um, I have to say that after seeing some of the previous episodes of your podcast, I, I wonder why I'm in the company of these people. You've got some real amazing overachievers and significant people that you've met, which for me to be in the company of these, uh, I, I consider that a real compliment. So I'm glad to be here. And uh, it's, it's good, to, uh, good to be interviewed for the first time, really interviewed. Well, it's, it's my pleasure. And I, I appreciate you being here because, uh, you know, you've worked so hard in your life to achieve the success you had, you have today. So it's, it's been pretty amazing over the years to see kind of the evolution of your life. So, you know, where were you born and raised? I was born in Torrance, California. I was raised there in, uh, along the beaches in Southern California. Um, I was able to grow up in a very affluent community that had excellent education. And, um, at the time, I didn't really realize just how great the schooling was around me because I just didn't push myself to really try and achieve more and be the best that I could be. I just didn't have the drive yet. Um, but I was able to grow up in a good, uh, centered, stable family, uh, my parents, and I have an older brother and younger sister, and we had a good cohesive family. And uh, we were raised with good, standard, traditional morals, ethics, and values, hard work, honest, honesty, and um, and thank thankfully because both of my parents descended from parents who were farmers, and I think that was a real key issue in in my upbringing because from what I've seen and observed with other people who are familiar with farming or have lived on a farm or been raised on a farm uh farmers have a good solid honest work ethic and you have to you have to work hard and, and learn to be responsible because if you're taking care of plants live you know livestock and animals they require care and management every day you have to feed them you have to manage them and and we had lots of pets growing up so we were constantly bothered by the responsibility of raising and taking care of animals and my mom had a garden and uh, we we were we weren't totally involved in the gardening but the thing is that we had a sense of the responsibility that that came with 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 uh, things like that and we also uh, realized that you don't just plant a seed and expect a fruit the next day when you plant a seed you have to be patient for it to grow and you have to nurture it and take care of it and and you have to wait until it matures, and then it grows, then it blossoms, then a fruit develops. And then when the time is ripe for picking. So we developed a lot of good, 
uh, responsible behaviors early on, thanks to our parenting. And so let, let me ask you more about that. You're, you said your your father's family grew up around a farm and your mother's as well. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? And where, where, is, where are your mom and dad from? Well, my mom was born and raised in California, but but her parents, her, her father came to this country from the Philippines in 1926. Uh, he was 24 years old and, and he was the last of 13 children in the Philippines. And he is the only one who went to college and got an education. The rest of his siblings never pursued college, but he wanted to learn more. And there were some other issues going on at the time. And he decided to leave the Philippines and come to America. So he came here to this country in 1926. Uh, my mother's mother uh, is part of a family that that used to live in Chihuahua, Mexico. They were farmers, and they decided to make the move to California. And so, along the drive, along the um, the uh, the migration to California, that was when my grandmother was born. While they were crossing through the territory of New Mexico, so my mother's mother was actually the very first actual American citizen in the family. Uh, of Mex the Mexican side. So my mom is half Filipina, half Mexican. And my father um, grew up on a farm in Jamaica. And uh, the, the ethnic mix of my, of my dad's side of the family is very diverse. I mean, if you look at one of my family reunions um, on that side, you'll see English, Irish, Scottish, Arawak, Indian, Black, African, uh, and, and I, th I think also uh, Asian. So it's a very, very, dimix, very diverse mixture. Uh, I, I think I can truly say that I'm a cosmopolitan. I'm, I'm such a mix. Um, and so there's a lot of different things mixed in me, and I had very good um, upbringing thanks to the, the hard work ethic that both my parents brought into the family when raising us. And when you, how old was your dad when he came from you said your mom was born in California. Your dad was born in Jamaica. When did he come from Jamaica and settle in the States? Oh, he, he came to California in December of 1952. He was still 19 years old. He was a month shy of his 20th birthday. He came here by himself. Uh, he came here because he, uh, he both sides of my family were Seventh-day Adventists and uh, my father had been going to uh, a college, a college of the West Indies in Jamaica, and they had an affiliate campus in California, uh, Pacific Union College in Angwin, up in near Napa Valley. And so my father decided that he wanted to continue his education uh, at this affiliate campus. And he, his goal was to uh, be a physician. Uh, of, of all the, the kids there were, there were eight kids in the family on the farm, and my father was the one who said at the age of four years old he wanted to be a doctor, and and he did it. He was driven to do that. It was a single-minded uh, goal, and it, it might have been kind of a, a, a gutsy call for someone on a farm in Jamaica to decide he wanted to be a doctor. He came to America to do it, and he did it. After he did that, three of his brothers followed suit and became physicians as well, and then both of his sisters became nurses. So he was, in many ways, a trailblazer and a leader. Um, and the majority of the family did migrate to either the United States or to Canada. So most of the family left Jamaica after my father uh, made the jump and left 
his family, his country, his culture, everything he knew to start fresh and new the adventure of his life at the age of 19 in California. And when your father went into uh, medical school, was it a difficult, uh, I guess a difficult, was it difficult for him to get through medical school and how did he do it financially? And, you know, was he really, really driven? Uh, academically, it wasn't difficult. He was a lifetime straight A student. He was a very gifted minded uh, student. Uh, that's one thing I, I wish I wish I had. I was not <laughs> gifted with that. I'm far more normal. <laughs> but now he's a lifetime straight A student. And um, but he was always working odd jobs, small jobs, part time jobs, anything to earn extra money with spare time he had because he was paying his own bills. He was paying his own way. And um, and it was difficult. And, you know, he, he made a sacrifice because he was after the goal of, of becoming a physician. And when he did uh, achieve that and made his life and his career and started a family, <clears throat> he told all three of us kids, he said, if, if you're serious about getting an education and you want to go to college, um, we will help you. But if you're just going to go to college and screw around and party and, and just, you know, fail out of school and not give a real effort, then you do that on your own. We're not going to back that up financially or help you in that regard. And so the thing is that uh, I was given an opportunity, but I wasn't about to blow it because as I was growing up, I knew that a lot of my friends that I, I knew growing up in school, as we were approaching the end of high school, I didn't know any of my other friends that had the kind of uh, offer and support that my parents were giving us. Uh, my dad told me, he said that uh, he had to make a lot of sacrifices um, when he was in school, he couldn't go to a lot of the parties and dances and, and functions and social functions and things because he was always working. Any spare time he had, he'd be cleaning toilets, sweeping halls, taking out trash, doing gardening in the front of the school, any odd job he could do to earn extra money. So he did make the social sacrifices, but he was single-mindedly driven to achieve his goal. And he missed all those things, but he didn't want us to have to pay the same price to miss all those fun social events. And so the offer was basically, if you're serious about school, we'll help you. Uh, but if you're, if you don't really care, then don't do it. And uh, you're on your own. And what was your relationship like with your mom and with your mom growing up? Well, um, I know that, you know, parents aren't supposed to have favorites and kids really aren't supposed to have favorites, but these things happen. And, uh, I became closer with my father just because we think so much alike. We shared so many opinions. It was very rare that we disagreed on something. And so that actually drew us closer. My brother and sister actually uh, were drawn closer to my mom. So they actually, my brother and sister actually had a closer relationship with my mother than I did. And I had a closer relationship with my father than they did. And I understand that it, it's, it's nothing that, that bothers me or I'm ashamed of. It's just the way things turned out. But um, as I've gone through life, I've noticed that that's a very common trend and it just happens. But it, it wasn't, it wasn't, I didn't pick that. But just as, as you grow, as you grow up and, and you share opinions and talk about things, events, um, uh, get advice on issues and stuff. Um, I'm glad my dad was always there because 
he was the cornerstone in my growing up. He really was the the, the best person in my life that made a big difference in forming the character, my morals, my ethics, my standards, my streak of humanitarianism, my willingness to help others. All those things that are me, they come from my father. And when you were growing up, who were your role models when you were growing up? Gosh, you know, I I don't know if I ever made any solid role models. I mean, there were, there were some people that either I took note of or admired, but um, I don't know. I That's a good question. I have to think, think and see who, who uh, had the greatest influence on me other than my father. I mean, I was just close to my dad. And um, maybe one of the reasons that I would have to say he was my most significant uh, role model is because of the things he taught me. Uh, way back when I was a teenager, when my brother and I were, were young, we were teenagers, um, my dad shared something with us that he learned from his father. And my grandfather told my dad when he was young, he said, persistence, ambition, and determination are the only three ways you're going to get anything you want in the world. And our father taught us that too. And I believe it's true because it has made the difference and has helped me get where I am today. Um, to just uh, never quit, never give up, and just be single-minded in, in your determination to achieve a goal in spite of all the obstacles, the difficulty, and the time that it takes to get there. Uh Hard work is is uh, imperative, and patience is also important because you can't expect immediate results. You have to work for them, and and I did. I worked hard to try and make myself available to opportunities or create them, and uh, I I got through somehow. And what was your relationship, and how did your your you have a sister and a brother? How did they influence you in your life when you were growing up? What was your relationship like in the the Gallimore house. <laughs> well, I'm the middle child. I got picked on by both sides. <laughs> yeah. Let's see. I, I guess my brother being the firstborn, uh, you can look in the in the, the, the archives of our photos, our family photos. There's tons of pictures of him because he's the firstborn. And then my sister came behind me, and, and she's the only girl, and she's the baby of the family. So lots of pictures of her. And, and maybe it's fair to say that there aren't as many pictures of me. <laughs> so I'm sort of the forgotten middle child, but it just worked out the way. It doesn't matter to me it, because that's a common trend, by the way. So I, I cannot fault my parents. They're perfectly normal people, and those are things that just happen. And uh, it, it's it, you don't even know that you're doing it. And then one day you realize, holy cow, we don't have any pictures of this person. <laughs> And, and I remember your dad was was extremely a hard worker, and your mom was too. And I know she worked in the office with your father for many years in private practice. And I guess one of the questions is, what did you learn watching your father in his practice and your mom? Well, as far as the my the parents that I had, um, you know, I had a few friends growing up who who uh, were in, in uh, split families, you know, divorces happen. My parents stayed together uh, till the end. Um, in fact, my father just passed away last December. 
um, and my parents were married for over 64 years. And they had their differences. They fought, they argued, uh, but they stayed together. And I think one of the reasons they stayed together uh, was partly because at the time that they were raised and the time they got married, culture and society and, and social norms and expectations were different. Um, it's not the same today. And, and furthermore, they stayed together for us, for us kids to, to keep a cohesive family unit for the benefit of us during our formative years and being raised. And I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for that because I, I've known so many people who've gone through divorces. They just throw in the towel, they give up and they don't care. Or, or the differences, uh, they, they, they get so bad that they can't, they can't cohabitate. I mean, as they say, irreconcilable differences. Yeah, I guess that exists. But, you know, my, my parents put up with the differences. And they, they stayed as a team and they looked out for each other. And I appreciate that uh, endlessly because uh, they set a good example of things that matter. And uh, when you decide to start a family and you bring children into the world, you, you have to be there for them. They need you. Where else are they going to go? You can't turn your back on them and split apart and leave a fractured family. It's, it's a dis disadvantageous situation in many cases. Now, there are some cases where, yeah, it's better to, to separate and go your own separate ways. But it all depends on – there are lots of variables involved. But I'm glad my parents stayed together. Uh, we benefited from having a unitary family. And uh, we, have, we, had a, we all had closer relationships with each other. I, I, I remember a story you once told me, and I remember your father built your own home, which is a pretty amazing story. And and I guess you guys had a second floor. And your dad was a genius, like one of the smartest physicians I've ever met. And he, he was a great family physician. He's very much in the old style physician mode, which was managed care didn't push time where there was 15 minutes per person your dad would stay and speak with someone a half an hour or an hour sometimes and uh when managed care came around that one of the reasons that he left uh the, the, um, the his practice was managed care was forcing him to spend a lot less time with his patients which he didn't want to do but i remember one of the stories was he built a second floor and he can you tell me about can you tell me about that really quickly? <laughs> oh my gosh. And, yeah, what well, and what happened to one of you uh with those <laughs> with that situation? With the uh, the um what do they call them? The slats, I guess, on the uh the 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 banister or the railing. Well, uh my parents built a custom home in 1970, and my dad uh, being a farmer and you know, when we were kids growing up, he taught us so much. He taught us masonry work, plumbing, carpentry, um, and, and auto repair and, and tune-up and changing, you know, changing tires, breaking a tire off the rim and, and then putting it back on and, and patching tires. And so, so he's a real hands-on guy. And when he, when he was building the custom home, I mean, this is one thing I never told you, but, but the, the, the guy he hired to – the, the architect who designed the home, the guy had already had the trenches done, uh, dug out where the walls would be and, and all the steel beams would be placed in there. And I believe if, if memory serves me right, the, the trenches were, they were, 
they must have been at least a foot deep or maybe 18 inches deep. And my dad wanted them deeper. So on his own time, he went there with a shovel and he dug all the trenches out deeper, six inches deeper. And, and man, when the architect found that out, that pissed him off so much because it totally changed all of his calculations of how many square cubic feet of cement he would need to pour everything. And then it would alter the cost and everything. And my dad just told him, I did this because I want it this way. And I don't care what the cost is. You give me the, the bill. I'll pay the difference, but I want it my way. So, okay, my dad's a real hands-on guy. So he's designing this house. And on the upstairs, the second floor, uh, there's a, a kind of a foyer. There's a there's a, an open space. And he measured he measured the, the, uh, the width of our heads so he could make sure that all the slats in the railing on the upstairs railing would be closer than the width of our heads so that we couldn't squeeze between there and then fall down to the second to the first floor below. And so that was the plan, but he wasn't there when the the uh, builders actually put all of those those um those slats in those those vertical beams and I'm I'm poking around there, I'm a kid, and I found one that was wide enough for me to stick my head through there. All the other ones I couldn't do that, but there was one on the way on the end, and I could fit my head in there. So <laughs> I, I squeezed through there, and so I'm grabbing on to the slats, and I am having my feet poking through uh, from the opposite side. I mean, if I fall down, it's right down to the first floor, nothing to break my fall, and I'm I'm scooting along sideways, you know, going by each of the slats from one side of of the upstairs to the other. And I did this several times. I never told anybody. It wasn't until probably, I don't know, I was probably about 20 years old. And I told my dad, hey, dad, you know, I used to do this. Boy, was he furious because his whole plan was to prevent something like that from happening. And I was doing it. And I just never fell down because I was careful. But <laughs> yeah, it's one of those uh, um, later revelations that, that, that I didn't know that he had planned that because later on he told me, that's not, supposed to, that's not supposed to happen. I designed that so that you couldn't fit your head through there. I measured your heads so that you couldn't fit through there. <laughs> yeah, I'm just glad that you didn't get your head stuck in there. Um, but that might account for who you are today, too. <laughs> well, that was back then when I had a small head. I'm a doctor now, so it's a lot bigger. So so let me ask you, and how was what were your high school years like? And did you do well in high school? And what was your trajectory toward going? Did you plan on going to college and and what was the process like for you? Oh, boy. You know, I look back now and I think, well, I'd sure like to have another crack at high school because, man, I was I was your stereotypical, listless, lazy son of a bum uh, trying to figure out how can I get through this with minimal effort? I didn't want to try hard. I didn't care to. It didn't matter to me. And, um, you know, I, I I don't know. It was weird. I, I was always I've always been good in math. I just didn't apply myself. And <clears throat> there are lots of times in, in classes, teachers would put a problem on the board and, and they're still writing the problem. And I already have the answer in my head. I see it. And no one else sees it. And I'm thinking, how come the others don't see it unless they're just being quiet like me? I didn't say didn't say anything until I finally got tired of it. So I just raised my hand. So I see the answer. And I thought, no one else saw that. And I, now I was far short of thinking that, okay, I'm the smartest guy in the room. Uh, I just thought that, all right, maybe they didn't get that. But 
Um, I, I was not a gifted student in, in high school. Um, I, I suffered from uh, low reading comprehension, slow reading, poor reading comprehension. In fact, uh, before high school, I spent seventh and eighth grade uh, in the classroom of, of a teacher named Charlotte Trujillo, who uh, was, uh, she was my remedial reading teacher who was supposed to help me improve my reading speed and comprehension. And I, I needed help with that because I'm a math guy and, and I hate reading books. Reading books puts me to sleep. Unless it's something I'm really interested in, then I'll stay awake and, and focused on it. But, you know, this teacher was riding my back, you know, uh, trying to get me to read books, do book reports and stuff. And I was just lazy. I didn't want to do it. And I'm a stubborn Taurus. Well, luck would have it. So is she. She's a Taurus. And so we butted heads. For two years, I was in her class and I hated it. It was hell. I couldn't stand her. Every day in class, was she's riding my back, pressuring me. She'd get all pissed off at me. And back then, you know, she used to teach in a classroom that was in these portables away from the main school building structure, which was probably a good thing because she would raise her voice and she would cuss at me. She would tell me, you lazy Mexican, get your ass in gear and start reading books. You're going to be a nothing if you, if you don't try and start to educate yourself. And, and uh, oh, she'd grab a paperback book and, and throw it at my head from across the room. Yeah, she had some unorthodox styles, but um, I guess they worked because, you know what, at the end of eighth grade, after two years in, in in her uh, <laughs> her camp, um, I was reading at ninth grade, tenth month, or something like that. I was ahead of my peers, like ninth grade, fifth or sixth month, and um, and so she helped me. She helped me a lot, and um, I I acknowledged her for that. Um, well, I remember the last day of eighth grade because uh, I was finishing eighth grade. Next next step was high school, and. I remember that last day in class, I was thinking, oh, good, this is the last day. I'm going to finally get rid of this menace out of my life and move on, and, and she's done. I'll never have, to see her, never have to see her again. And that last day in the class, it was really strange. She sat there, and then she got up out of her chair and stood up leaning against the desk with this most carefree smile on her face. It was the most nonchalant, relaxed smile on her face, the last day of class. There was no work to do. It was just waiting for the last day to finish and she truly had a look on her face like she had been vanquished. She was done. She did her best. There's nothing more she can do to help us now. We're heading off, finishing eighth grade, and on with high school. And as much as I was thinking, I'm glad to get out of here and be done with her, never to see her again. And then we got to the last five minutes of that class, and I started counting down the last five minutes, and I started to think about, man, I can't wait to get out of here. I should be happy to get out of here. And all of a sudden, I had this weird, hesitant feeling starting to well up inside of me. I would look at her with a carefree smile. She's just kind of talking lightly with some students in the front row. And I'm sitting way in the back, you know. And I'd look around the classroom, and I look at the clock on the wall, and I look around the classroom, and I look back at her, and the five minutes were ticking down, and I'm starting to feel anxiety. Like, I should be happy as hell, man. I'm about to get rid of this teacher out of my life and move on. And I'm thinking to myself, is this what I, is this what I want? Am I ready for this? Am I ready to leave her? Because what's next? I hope I'm prepared for it. 
And I was starting to really have funny feelings about doubt. And so I look around the room, look at the clock on the wall. It's ticking down two minutes, one minute. And then the bell rings. And you'd think I'd be the first one to leap out of my chair and make a beeline out the door and get out of there. Man, I just sat there and everyone was getting up and moving down the aisle toward the door to exit the classroom. And I was slowly getting my backpack and my stuff together. And and I thought, well, this is it. I've got to go. So I walked out. The hallway now was full of students. I make a right turn and I'm passing by each of the big window panes, the glass panes, walking toward the end of the classroom. And as I got to the second to the last pane of glass, I peeked into the classroom and I looked over and I could see Mrs. Trujillo wiping a tear from her eye. And I saw that through the tear that was in mine. And I never forgot that feeling. Like, why, why is there a tear in my eye? I think it was, it was because I'm thankful for all she did. She helped me. And, and um, I later found out that she'd retired, and I found her in retirement. And that, that's, that's an additional story. Um, because when I found her, uh, I was in my third year at UCSF Dental School. I got into the best dental school in the country, the hardest one to get into. There are 22 applicants for every one space available, and they offered me one, and I took it. And I found out she retired, and I was able to get her address. She retired and moved to a small historic gold mining town called Sonora in Northern California. And I found out on the map, it was 125 miles away from where I was living in San Francisco at the dental school, behind the dental school. So one, one weekend, I got up in the morning and I drove out there. I drove 125 miles, found her address, knocked on the door, and there was nobody there. So I knocked again, and then the next door neighbor stuck her head out the window and said, are you looking for Charlotte? And I said, yes, do you know where she went? And she said, well, she's not there anymore. And the my first thought in my mind was, did she die? I hope not. I want to see her. And she says, no, she moved. She moved to Salinas last month. <laughs> I missed her by a month. So she gave me her address in Salinas. So I drove all the way back to San Francisco. Uh, then three weeks later, after finding her address in Salinas, I drove to Salinas. Found her address, knocked on the door. The door opened, and there she was. Now, it's a big difference. When I saw her when I was 13 years old, you know, I was a little kid, you know, skinny little kid. And she's a big, tall, menacing monster haunting me. Now the, the tables have totally turned. It's completely juxtaposed. I'm a full-grown man. I'm tall. And I filled out. And now she's shrunk. She's old. And she's, you know, just looking frail. And I introduced myself. I told her my name. And she remembered the name but didn't recognize me because I'd changed so much physically. And I told her. I told her what what I've been doing and where I'm going to school. And I told her, I said, I got into the best dental school in the country and I didn't do it alone. I had some help. And I want you to know that I got there because of you. You deserve credit for this. I could not have done this without the help you, you gave me. I told her you did more for me for my own good and against my will than anyone else in my life. And I want to thank you for that, man. <laughs> Total waterworks. Uh, me too. And, 
you know what? Her son was there. Her son is a high school teacher. He witnessed this whole thing. She was broke down crying. She told me in her 35 years of teaching, uh, I'm the only student that found her and thanked her for what she did for me. And I assured her, I said, uh, I'm sure there are lots of other students out there that would like to give the same message to you. They just don't know you're here. I'm lucky enough that I found you. The others haven't found you yet. And so I'm glad I got to tell her that. But she's the one who prepared me for high school. Uh, and so now I, now I get into high school. <laughs> I'm a bum. <laughs> I'm not trying. And, oh, I'm just coasting along. And uh, my academic record was nothing to look twice at. Uh, I think up until my last year in high school where I changed and I started to really try hard and got good grades. I think I, when I graduated, I was, I was, a, I graduated at the 60th percentile. I mean, my academic record was nothing to brag about. It was almost embarrassing, but I got through and uh, I, I was able to move on and uh, head off to college. But the thing is that I paid the price for, for the things I did and didn't do. Um, initially, you know, before we met at UC Irvine in 1985, I, I went to San Diego State for two years. My initial intention was to go to University of San Diego or UC San Diego. My grade point average was high enough. My ASAT scores were high enough. But they told me that, uh, well, you got this this D in your first semester of, of your second year in high school in geometry. And we want you to retake that course and raise that grade. And I told them, I said, but look at my SAT score. My math score alone is in the top 1%. I mean, I scored higher than 99% of the other students. And that the SAT is all algebra and geometry. I've mastered the subject matter and I've proven it. You want me to waste my time and retake a course for nothing but your own satisfaction? I refuse to do it. It's a waste of my time. And they said, well, well, we have our rules. You know, that's our policy. I said, well, you should make an exception for this, for your policy, because I am an exception. Look at my scores. And, and, and uh, the teacher that gave me that D, he left. He left in, in December at the break, at the semester. And he went back to Pennsylvania. And I, I was suspicious that he sabotaged me because, uh, you know, I've got a mathematical mind. I don't use a calculator. And at the end of, of the year, when he was trying to figure out the point totals to break down the, the point totals for all the grades, his calculator battery had died. And so he was asking anyone in the class who has a calculator if he could borrow it. No one had one. So students suggested, well, uh, maybe the teacher next door has one. Um, he said, okay, why don't you go over next door and see if you can borrow their calculator. So while the student went next door, and I asked the teacher, I said, uh, uh, well, what are you trying to figure out? Uh, oh, uh, the percentage breakdowns. I said, well, what was, how many points are possible in the class? What's the point total? And what are the percentages you want? So he told me, and I told him right off the bat, off the top of my head, what the breakdown total numbers to two numbers behind the decimal point. And you know, he wrote them down. And then the, the student came back with a calculator, and then he punched all the numbers, and I was right. 
I, I think I showed him up and he didn't like that. So I got a D. <laughs> At least that's my story. <laughs> yeah, and you're, stick, and you're so, sticking to it. So you, Yeah, so, so, so I, I didn't go to UCSD. Uh, I couldn't get in. They wouldn't let me in. So I ended up going to San Diego State for two years until I could apply into the U, UC system and transfer in to Irvine where, where we then met. Yeah. So then you went on, you went from San Diego state and then you end up graduating from uh, university of California, Santa Barbara. What was your experience like academically? You were, were you a dual, you had a, a double major at, at UC uh, Santa Barbara? Yes. Yeah. If, if I had stayed at UC Irvine, I would have graduated in four years with a biology degree. And, um, what, what derailed all of that was, um, a couple of conversations that I had with my father in the summer of 1985. Um, I think it was 85. No, maybe it was 86. Anyway, yeah, summer, summer of 1986. Um, he, he was asking me if I was thinking of going into medicine and following his footsteps. I said, yes. And he said, well, I'll take a chance on the fact that you and I are so much alike that um, it's very, that, very rare that we disagree, but there are some things happening in medicine and changes that, that I don't like, and I'm sure you won't like them either. But the thing is, I'm heading toward the end of my career. I'll retire soon. But if you follow me, you'll be trapped in the middle of your career and have to deal with all these nasty changes, and it's going to get worse and worse, and, and you're stuck. And you have to ride it out to the bitter end, and I don't want that for you. And so I, I never thought of medicine again after that talk. And then another time he said, just a, just a casual comment he made while we were talking one time, he said, he said, you know, instead of majoring in biology and minoring in chemistry, I wish I'd minored in, in business management because I had so many interesting business opportunities that came my way, but I didn't engage them because I didn't feel comfortable. I didn't know anything about it or how to assess it. So I passed them up, but I'd be a multimillionaire today if I'd engaged these, if I'd known what I was doing. And I thought, holy cow, I'm a biology major too. I'm following my dad's footsteps. I'm going to make the same mistakes he's going to make, he made. And that was, that was when I made a change. I thought, you know what, I'm going to, ever since I took that macroeconomics course in my first semester of college at San Diego State, I've never been able to shake that, that bug of learning more business. So I thought, I'll, I'll take an extra year in undergrad. I'll do five years in undergrad. And I'll double major in biology and economics. Ultimately, at UC Santa Barbara, um, I ended up getting the, bio, the economics degree, and I didn't focus on the biology degree. I was 12 or 13 units shy of completing that, but I figured if I got in dental school, I'll get all those biology courses anyway, and I, I made a simple pact with myself. I thought, well, I don't want to leave the state of California. Uh, if I get accepted in dental schools outside of California, I'll probably not go. I want to stay in California, but if I do not get into a California dental school, then I'll just pursue an MBA and, and, and pursue a career in business. But I, I accidentally got into some schools, well, so I, well, I took the opportunity. And I want to go into that a little bit. Um, one of the stories that you told me about was when you graduated the university of California, Santa Barbara, your grades were decent. They weren't, uh, they weren't like top tier because you had very difficult classes. And I remember when you told your counselor that your academic counselor at UC Santa Barbara, I plan on applying to these top tier dental schools. And 
I think that you had you had already finished taking your exams uh, for dental school, the actual written portions of it. Um, I know you did well on that, um, but I remember your counselor said something to you. What was that? Oh, <laughs> yeah, my my counselor. Um, he looked at my grades, and I was trying to put together a list of of California schools that I wanted to apply to. And he looked right off the, right off the top. He said, Oh, don't even bother apply to UCLA or UCSF. Uh, uh, that you won't get in there. That's just, those are difficult schools, which, you know, I can't blame him. I mean, look at my grades, but the thing is that I, I disregarded that because I figured, um, I don't want him to put <laughs> limits on what I think I can do. I haven't applied my own creativity in working out this problem. And it does come down to how do, you, how do you market yourself and how you approach solving the problem. Um, I figured that maybe I'll have a chance because I did study biology. I, I got decent grades and I got good, S, good uh, DAT scores. You know, I, I think that my DAT scores were very strong and, and very unorthodox considering my GPA. Usually there's a positive correlation between your, your academic performance and your what, DAT scores. What is a DAT? The dental admissions it. test. It, it's a it's a it's an exam that's administered to all students who want to apply to dental school. It focuses on there are four different areas they focus on. One is the um, the, the science core, which is see biology, chemistry, and organic chemistry. And then there's a part that focuses on your reading and comprehension. And then there's another part, uh, a third part that focuses on um, your um, quantitative reasoning, you know, math and uh, quantitative reasoning, analytical thinking. Um, and the, the most important part, which most people didn't realize, but the most important part of that entire exam is the perceptual ability test. And uh, I knocked that out of the park. I am certain I got a raw score that was 100%. I, I, I know I did not miss any of those problems. I, I, got, I, I was able to go through the whole test. There was still time remaining, so I, I went through the five or six that I marked as difficult. I'd like to check over if I had chance to review them. I think I changed the answer on one of them. I, I liked the answers on the others. And there was still time left, so I went through the entire exam a second time. And there was still time remaining, so I went through the whole thing a third time. I was sure that I got everything right. Um, and, and, and that was the most important part of the test. So um, my, my scores in other areas, my reading comprehension was actually average. I was glad that Mrs. Trujillo helped me to at least uh, achieve an average score against other college applicants. Because, you know, in, in, in high school and in, in intermediate school, I was well below my peers. But she, she got me, she restored me to competitiveness. And um, anyway, that, that, that counselor advised me not to apply to those schools. And so uh, one of the reasons I think I got in is because I know that the head admissions officer interviewed me. And I asked her some questions after the interview was over. I asked her, do you, do you guys have quotas here at, at the program as far as the 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 makeup of the applicant pool or, or ethnicity or race or anything. And she said, no, we don't have quotas. We might have aspirations. We'd like to have so-and-so. Basically, they wanted to try and assemble a class of students that would be representative of the 
local community in San Francisco. And I may have helped achieve one of those aspirations in that I had a business degree, so I had a different perspective on things. I, I had a decent enough science scores and academic scores, and I had a business degree, so I would have a different perspective compared to the rest of the classmates. And they, they want that. They want variety in thinking. They don't want everyone to just be streamlined, all, you know, like mirror image of each other. And so that may have helped. Uh, but nowadays, they, I know that a lot of, um, a lot of uh, admissions officers, are, uh, they, they look for things you've done to create distinction between you and the other applicants. That may have been one of the biggest factors giving me distinction compared to the rest of the typical biology, chemistry, microbiology, zoology, you know, all the science majors that, that were surrounding me. And, 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 how, and what was your journey like in dental school? Was it, a, was it difficult? And what did you find the most difficult thing in terms of dental school? What was the most difficult challenge for you? Oh, man. <laughs> when I arrived at dental school and I started to, um, started to get to know my classmates, um, I realized, and I remember looking in the Gorman reports back then, on the five-point five point scale, if I remember correctly, I think that Harvard ranked 4.91, UCSF was 4.90, and I think, I, I don't know if it was UCLA or the third-place school was 4.88. Uh, 4 there was a bit of a break, but UCSF was trying to topple Harvard and get the number one ranking. So the thing is that uh, that is a demanding program that's bolstered with all kinds of extra courses. The curriculum is very hard. And that school gets the creme de la creme of the applicant pool in the nation. And as I started to get to know my classmates, uh, I know of at least seven people in my class who had photographic memory. They could look at a book on a page and recall the text verbatim. Uh, these are people that are lifetime straight-A students. They never had to study. They, they just look at it and they remember it. I'm nothing like that. Uh, when I when I sized up these people and realized, holy cow, did I bite off more than I can chew? How am I going to survive the, uh, in, in this academic environment? I've got to try and achieve passing grades in, in this kind of a, a, a group of, of students. I'll never be able to match them. I've got to work harder just to uh, have a respectable standing. So um, that was when I made a I also made a pact with myself. I thought, you know what? Nothing else matters in my life right now. I've got two years to buckle down and work three times as hard as the others to read all this stuff, read it over again, remember it, memorize it, and spit it up on that test because I've got to pass. Otherwise, you know, when, when I was offered a space in that class, I got my foot in the door, and then I pulled myself into the room. And I thought to myself, I think the head admissions officer gave me a break. And the last thing I want to do is to fail out of that school, be asked to leave the room, because then she'll be sitting there with egg on her face and the other admissions officer will look at her and say, see, we told you not to give that slot to that guy. He couldn't cut it. Because I, I believe strong case can be made that, that that slot could have been given to a more deserving student. But it came to me. And it was a gift, and I took it. But with the gift comes the responsibility to, to work hard and honor it and don't blow it. So my single focus was to not blow it. 
Those and, are the two most stressful years of my life. Uh, that was hard. That's why so I started what, losing my hair. <laughs> so, so, so what characteristics do you think that you have or people must possess to get through those difficult times? Well, you know what? Uh, I, re I routinely referred back to just what my dad told me. You know, persistence, ambition, and determination are the only three ways you're going to get anything you want in the world. But I, I would modify that a little bit. I think just from my experience, I'd say, and a little luck. Because you know what? I, I can't deny it. I've had some luck come my way. I've, I've had some good fortune come my way. But I've worked hard to prepare for the opportunity. I'm not sure if it was Mark Cuban or... Um, Oh gosh, one of one of those uh, one of those execs, corporate execs, who's a real influential leader in thinking and, and ideas. Uh, one of them, uh, it may have been Mark Cuban. I'm not certain, but he said, whoever it was, said, um, "Luck is when preparedness meets opportunity." And so, yeah, I've worked hard to stay prepared in case an opportunity landed in my lap, and I was able to engage it. But and when you finished dental school, I, I you always you, you always you harken back to this story about you actually went back to your school afterwards, and you you went to see the counselor after you graduated dental school, the one that told you not to apply <laughs> to to uh, UCSF. And, and what did you say to him? <laughs> how, yeah, how did that? Yeah, I, I was happy to go back to UC Santa Barbara. Do I need an excuse to not go visit that beautiful campus? I, I went back a few times, and, and and I found him just because I wanted to give him an update on my progress. I told him I did apply there, and I did get in. So, and 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 I remember you advised me not to waste my money on the application fee, but I got in. And uh, you know, of course, he doesn't remember the details like I do because he he probably has hundreds of students he's counseling or advising, but. I didn't want to rub it in, but I did want to let him know that because he remembered me and I just give a progress report. Yeah, I, I got in and, and uh, I did finish the program. But the thing is that I still am glad for his guidance. Let's face it. I'm a student. I don't know what he knows. And he's still a, a resource for me to access and get advice, counsel, help me through things. And I appreciate his help. Uh, I accepted most of his advice, but not all of it. And but I I typically do that. I'm willing to listen and learn, but I'll also critique what I've heard and tweak it to my liking, for however I can work with it. Was there any point in dental school where you felt like I'm not gonna I'm not gonna pass this, or I'm I'm gonna fail? And if there was ever a point like that. How did you refocus to get through it? I think you brought up three, three things already, but there must have been some other things. How did you deal with your stress and how did you refocus to make sure you pass those classes? Well, I never I never felt like I would fail out, but there were two times I was <laughs> I was this close to quitting. And and that that has to do with basically something my father warned me about because uh, he went through medical school and he told me he said when you go to graduate school, when you enter a graduate program, that graduate program is supposed to be the academic challenge of your life. It is supposed to be difficult. It's supposed to push you beyond your limits. It's supposed to be a tough test for you. It's not supposed to be easy. 
And you're going to be challenged. Expect that. But also expect the possibility that there might be someone on the faculty who just might pick you out of the crowd for no reason in the world and just decide to make your life hell, make things difficult for you and make it tougher than the others for them for the others. And that happened to me. There are two, two instructors that did that to me. And that's why I was so close to quitting. I just I was getting to the point where I was I had enough. But fortunately, there were there were three other instructors that I'd gotten to know pretty well and was able to talk to them and vent about it. And they're the ones that kept my head in the game. They're the ones that kept encouraging me to not quit, not give up. One was Dr. Vern Tuller, who's passed away now, but but I've thanked him. I've told him uh, how important he was to me in my life. And and uh, he was the, the, the most encouraging, optimistic, positive, supportive guy. And I'm thankful for that. Another one was Dr. Phoenix Sinclair. He's just a great listener and just a practical thinker because he was an engineer before he quit engineering and went to dental school. So he's got a very good analytical mind. And he helped me through that. Then there was another guy named, uh, see, Dr. Curtis. Gosh, what's his name? Not Tom. Tom Curtis? Thomas Curtis? I can't remember. Dr. Curtis. Um, yeah, I was able to vent on him. And he told me, he said, you know, I can totally sympathize with what you're going through. Because when I was in dental school in Oregon, um, I, I almost quit. But I, I stuck through it and I got through it. In fact, I was so angry. I was so angry at the school that... I didn't set foot on the campus for 10 years after I had graduated. So other people who have either shared experiences or who can at least uh, sympathize and empathize and help me through it, I'm glad I had them. I'm glad that they listened to me because I needed some vent therapy, and they gave it to me. But they, I never felt like, like I was going to fail. I felt and, more like um, I'm sick of this BS. I want out of here. And it seems like – you know, we going back when we I asked this question earlier about role models and mentors, you've had quite a few over your lifetime that you've mentioned during this interview about people that really guided you and were significant factors in your success. And I think it's really important that we acknowledge those people in our lives and and, and search them out and try to find those people that we can connect to because they really do help us on our journey. And I guess so after after um, after um, you finished dental school, you worked a little while, then you moved to Las Vegas. Why did you choose Las Vegas? Well, trust me, I never thought I would leave the beaches of Southern California. Um, I, I worked for a year and a half in San Francisco. I got a job there after I graduated because even though I was a student there and living there in the city for four years, as a student, I was just stressed out and busy with work. I never took the opportunity to just casually, passively see the city, explore around and, and see stuff. So I stayed for an extra year and a half and drove all around the area to see things, sightsee, goof around, whatever. And then I moved to San Diego to be closer to my family because after exhausting my search in the, in the Northern California area, I couldn't find an area with enough opportunity for me to try and start my own business. It's just a saturated environment. There are, dental there, there are dentists everywhere. There are two dental schools cranking out graduates every year. And just like me, they all want to stay there. So there's just too many dentists. And uh, 
I decided to relocate closer to where my family would be because my, my parents had a second home in San Diego and they were going to retire there. And my sister was living there. And so I moved and I thought, okay, good. I'm going to get situated here. I, I found this old timer that had a denture practice and uh, he, he wanted to sell his practice and he, it wasn't a valuable business, but I bought it for a song. So I had my first business. I, Got my feet wet. Uh, I had a chance now to, to apply all the things I learned in getting my business degree and, and learn everything in the business from top to bottom. And I did everything from top to bottom. I did insurance forms. I did. I started with a pegboard system. <laughs> this is before computers. And did my own lab work and everything. And then, uh, you know, I'm working hard, putting 70, 74 hours a week in the office, doing everything. And then I had a friend living in Las Vegas. She was married and living here. I met her because she was dating one of my classmates when I was in dental school. And so we'd met each other and she had befriended me and another classmate. So we kept in touch with her. Anyway, um, she broke up with my classmate. She moved to Las Vegas, met a guy, got married. And she took the Nevada license exam and, and took twice and failed it because it was at the time it was the hardest exam in the country to pass. And so, uh, I decided, all right, this is nonsense. I'm going to help her prepare for the next go around because she's married and lives there and can't even practice dentistry. Uh, I got to help her fix that. So at the time, I'd helped three other dentists prepare for and pass four different board exams. I've got a good eye for detail and scrutiny. So I was able to critique someone's work and point out where they're dinging her. And when she showed me samples of her work, I pointed out the differences, why they're failing her. So once she corrected that and made those adjustments, and I thought, okay, now you're going to pass. You're doing things right. Barring any surprises or unforeseen circumstances, you should pass. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to take this test too because my dad kept bugging me to take it. I had no intention of leaving California, but my dad always bugged me saying, you know, it wouldn't hurt to have a plan B just in case things get bad in California so you have somewhere else to go if you want to leave. And he wouldn't let go of it. I mean, I'd call him and, you know, I'd, Talk to him on the phone all the time. Say, hey, Dad, you see the Lakers game last night? Wasn't that a great game? Yeah, it was a nice game. Hey, you ever think of taking that Nevada license exam? Yeah, he just wouldn't let go of it. So I thought, okay, I'm going to take this exam and shut him up. So we both took the test and we both passed. So good. Now he doesn't have to nag me anymore. And that was in July of 96. And so, so when, when, when did you open up your own office? And you have a very, very successful dental, dental office now. Um, you have a very large staff. And I, I, it's really, really funny to me. You, um, you actually own 702 Dentist, and 702 is the area code for Las Vegas, which is a huge area. So, so if anybody wants a dentist in Vegas, all you have to do is literally type in dentist. Somehow you got that. And how did you get that? Just if you could make really quickly, how did you get that? Because the opportunity to get 702 Dentist is probably pretty impossible. Oh boy, that goes back to 1998 when uh, I was getting really fed up with all the insurance games, all the insurance paperwork, all the insurance BS. I thought, I want to start my own dental insurance company because I'm a numbers guy. I'm a stats guy. It's just a number crunching game. And, you know, of course, actuarial, actuarial studies holds the truth in numbers, but they'll never give me the, the numbers so I could start from scratch. But the thing is, I thought, if I'm going to even contemplate starting a dental insurance company, I need to have some way of selling my product. I need to have a sword in battle that, that 
that, that will defend me, I can fight back with. So I thought, you know, if I can get the phone number that spells dentist here in the Las Vegas 702 area code, that would give me a chance to fight back and, and sell my products because um, I always thought that vanity phone numbers would become worthwhile. Uh, they hadn't taken off yet. It, was, it wasn't a popular thing, but I was thinking ahead that from a marketing perspective, nothing beats it. It's the most user-friendly, idiot-proof um, way of, of being contacted. Um, so anyway, I, um, I had to start looking around through different government agencies in, in um, Las Vegas or in Nevada. I was calling around in uh, Reno, and I got a guy on the phone who told me about uh, this outfit called New, New Star, which is, a, it's a, I guess, a government um, agency. And one of the subsidiaries of New Star is the North American Numbering Plan Administration, NANPA for short, N-A-N-P-A. And they are, they are the outfit that decides, chooses an area code and a telephone prefix for each state. And so uh, that's when I found out when I found out about that information. It's public knowledge. It's just obscure. No, no one knows about it. I found out about it. And so I decided to look for and see um, if anyone has the 336 prefix in the 702 area code. It hadn't been issued yet. And so I thought, okay, well, someone's going to get it. I'll just wait. Well, I didn't have to wait long. Uh, T-Mobile got the, the, the prefix. And so I got service with them. And back then, that was at the time they were having these ads with um, Catherine Zeta-Jones uh, advertising uh, T-Mobile's phone numbers and that you could actually choose a specific number. And so I went and chose that, that number. And, and uh, as soon as it became available, I, I was the first one to get an, a number issued in the 336 prefix. And so that's why I got it. Now, it was fair game. If you or anyone else knew what I knew, and was as prepared as I was, you all have equal chance to get it. So I didn't have to cheat or or tip the scales or do anything uh, untowards. It was a fair game, a fair race. I just was prepared, and I got to the finish line first. And so I got that. And then about five weeks later, I was <laughs> doing, I was waxing up a denture case. I was putting the denture teeth in the wax, carving it and stuff, and I thought, Denture, D-E-N-T-U-R. Hey, that's seven letters. I wonder if that's the phone number that's taken. So I called it. It wasn't in service. So an hour later, I got that. So now I had 702 Denture. I thought, yeah. well, you know, I feel like I've got Boardwalk and Park Place, but I want the red properties. There's one last piece to this puzzle. If I can trade up and get the red properties, and that's to get the 702 implant number. And that, that took extra effort, but I got that later on. Yeah, I know. I know you got all of those. So I know your your business is, is kind of blown up. I know you've you've had clients, um, some very famous clients that have owned casinos over the years and have done some amazing things. And your client base has grown a lot. The question I have for you is, I I, I want to give you a we got a few more minutes left. I want to ask you a couple questions. And what is the most difficult, challenging part of of having your own practice. And I guess the second part of that is when somebody is looking for a dentist, um, what advice do you give them? The most challenging part of having a business, well, it's the time commitment. I mean, now I still see patients Tuesday through Saturday. 
I've done five days a week for what will be you know, my whole career is basically five days a week. I like dentistry. I like my job. Um, but this December, I'm thinking of making a change and cutting back from five eight-hour days to four nine-hour days so I can have three-day weekends because I like having three-day weekends. And we do close the office one Saturday a month, uh, and I look forward to those three-day weekends. So I want to do that more. I think after putting in 30, 30 honest, hard years of good work, I, I can treat myself. Uh, uh, but the thing is that um, the time commitment is difficult. There's a lot of time involvement when you're running a business. And I'm real hands-on. Uh, believe me, uh, it was hard for me to learn to delegate authority to other people. I'm getting there. I've got some very good, um, reliable, competent employees who can handle responsibility, and I can trust them. And, and so I'm glad for that. And that, that's the key thing. In absence of having people that I, I, I can place that kind of confidence in, I don't want to give up power. I want to manage everything I can so that I don't end up having one of those stories of embezzlement. Believe me, I've, I've known lots of dentists who've been stung by an office manager or someone that, that robbed them blind for you know hundreds of thousands of dollars. But my, my involvement in the business, I, I like it because you know, I got a business degree. I like to keep tabs on all the business stuff. So that's my own willful decision to be as involved as I am. But I'd like to cut back because I do have competent people I can delegate these duties to. So I'm going to start doing that more. But uh, that's the most difficult part of having your own business. It's just the time commitment that, that is required if you want to um, run things right and maintain uh, control and management of it. Uh, aside from that, uh, any advice on picking a dentist? Boy, you know, if you were to ask me this question 20 years ago, I, I wouldn't have the same answer I have today. And my answer today is based on just uh, economic realities that have kicked in now. The world is different. Uh, ever since, um, let's see, I guess it was in the Obama administration, uh, Barack Obama took over the the uh, the student loan business from the private banks that were doing it. And so in doing so, um, where private banks would scrutinize a, a potential uh, borrower, check their credit score and, and, and due diligence because they want to make sure that the loan they're making is going to be reasonably paid back and not be irresponsible with the funds. Um, the government has the deep pocket. They're the ultimate deep pocket. So when uh, I believe that when... <laughs> schools realize now the government is going to be underwriting student loans. Well, they're the deep pocket. So why don't we raise our tuition because we're going to get the money and the student's going to pay it back. That's their problem. Uh, so tuition suddenly blew, uh, ballooned up through the sky. Now, now um, graduate school is very expensive. Students are graduating left and right with massive debt. I've met so many dentists now graduating with, you know, they're, they're in debt to $500,000 or more. That's a hell of an eight ball to start your career behind. I can't tell you how freaked out I was when I borrowed 208000 to build my office 19, 20 years ago. But I was able to pay that off. But, of course, the economy was on fire back then. The economy now is nothing like it was here in Las Vegas uh, 25 years ago. Uh, so the thing is that they're starting with massive debt. Most of these students... They, they don't have the business experience to understand finance and the debt that they're acquiring and the obligation now to pay it back. And um, short of any uh, uh, great pressure by the public to pressure Congress to write off or dismiss uh, student loan debt, 
these students are are they're in they're stuck in economic slavery. They've got to pay this debt. It's going to take years to pay that off. But the thing, the big problem is that that kind of debt is an adverse effect in has an adverse effect in their fair judgment and treatment planning. Um, you know, for example, someone might have a tooth, a piece of it breaks off. Maybe you can do a, a filling that's covers one or two surfaces on the tooth. Um, but you know what? I would do that. I'd do a, a filling, two, three surface filling, maybe a four surface filling. Um, but others would look at that and say, oh, you need a crown. That tooth needs a crown. It's Of course, it's a major procedure. It's higher end. It makes more money for them. And I can't blame them. They've, they've got to pay off that debt. Uh, it's just unfortunate that graduate schools have done this, and it's a big problem. But the thing is, I, I, what I want to do is I want to keep building my business and provide an opportunity for other dentists to, uh, without pressure, because this is I don't run a clinic. It's a private office, and we go to at a, a comfortable pace. I, the dentists who work for me, I tell them, I want you to be as busy as you want to be. You can work as fast or as slow as you want. It's your call. I want you to enjoy dentistry as much as I'm enjoying it. So I'm not going to ride your back and say, make more money for me. I don't care. Um, so the thing is that the, the massive debt that is, is commonplace now with, with new dentists coming out of dental school, I believe, is influencing their decisions on treatment options. Um, I usually would be able to give three different options of treatment, but dentists nowadays are just thinking of one, maybe two. And so that's just signs of the times, the, the economic times that we're in. So would you suggest that somebody sometimes, if it's get a second opinion? Sure, sure. Um, you know what? Uh, most everyone's born with a sixth sense, and you should listen to your sixth sense. It's there for a reason. It's there to protect you, to guard you. If something doesn't feel right or comfortable, um, don't follow through. Listen to your sixth sense and investigate. Get a second opinion um, because uh, it's better to research things and feel comfortable about it than, than deal with, uh, oh, I should have listened to my, my intuition. I knew something didn't feel right. No, but a lot of people, they, they blow it off. Then they regret it later. But, but no, get a second opinion. If, third opinion if you want but the thing is when you have a contrasting point of view it'd be nice at least to have either someone else agree with the the first room plan so you feel more comfortable with it or someone could offer an alternative the other person didn't think of or couldn't offer or might not have the skills to provide i don't know things are a matter of preference i mean literally there are lots of ways to solve a problem uh some people are going to focus on just the way that they want to solve it rather than letting the patient decide which solution they prefer most. You know, one of the questions I have for you is, why do you think growing up, everybody, when, when you mentioned the dentist, everybody gets afraid of that. They're afraid to go to the dentist. And what suggestions would you give somebody if they're afraid to go to the dentist? Wow. I'd say that 90% of the time that I have an adult in my chair who's who's got a phobia of, about going to the dentist. 90% um, of the time it relates to a bad experience they had when they were a kid. They may have been savaged by a dentist when they were a child. And, and I've known many cases. Um, uh, one most notable case is a friend of mine. Um, 
one of the first people I met when I moved out here because um, my friend Dave, uh, his parents were patients of mine in my San Diego office. So when I was closing that office, they told me, hey, we have a son who lives in Las Vegas. Why don't you meet him when you get there? So I moved out here and I met him and we, be we became friends. And uh, I didn't know this, but, um, you know, he was a performer and he was doing a gig. Uh, I think it was a bachelor party and a mirror fell from the ceiling. It detached from the ceiling. And it landed on his head, and it cut his scalp open, busted a couple of teeth, and it injured his, his upper back, his neck area. So now he's injured, and he's got a lawsuit brewing, and he came to me to get the teeth repaired that were damaged, the molars on the lower left side. And now we already knew each other for at least a couple of years as friends. He's totally comfortable, social, no big deal. Now he sits in the dental chair for the first time, and I'm going to work on him for the first time. And he sat in the dental chair and starts hyperventilating. Then he starts cold sweating. And then I tipped him back in the chair. And as soon as I touched his tooth, he freaked out. I asked him, what's wrong with you? What happened? He says, I don't know. I can't help it. I, every time I go to the dentist, I just, I freak out. He says, what happened? He says, well, my dad was in the Navy. And so when I was a kid, we used to go to the Navy dentist. And this guy savaged me. He was putting fillings in my teeth. And, and I could feel everything. And I wasn't numb. And he, I, I tried to tell him, and he ignored me and just kept drilling away and, and hurting me more. And so, yeah, experiences like this, they, they scar a person psychologically. Now it becomes a, a real big headache, a real big challenge to try and reverse that and get them to feel comfortable again uh, and forget about all, all the damage that was done so many years ago when they were young. But majority of the time, it's, it's usually when kids get savaged by a dentist who is either trying to hurry or doesn't care or just, you know, <laughs> just doesn't care. It's not his kid. So he just figured, you know how kids are. Kids, they're nervous. They horse around. They sit in the chair and you tell them to open their mouth and they turn their head this way and then they turn this way and they're playing games. And that'll tick off a dentist. If he's got a busy clinic, he's got three dental chairs operating at one time. You got one kid who's turning and twisting his head all over the place and won't cooperate. So you're falling behind schedule. <laughs> I think that'll, that'll cause a snap moment in most dentists if you're not careful. So what would you suggest? Would you suggest having a conversation with your dentist prior? Hey, you know what? I, I have these feelings about dentists and you, you just have a conversation with them just to you have a conversation about some of the things that maybe you can do and just to kind of reassure them. Well, yes. Yes. It's, um, you know, if, if the dentist will make the time to uh, meet someone, uh, a lot of dentists, <laughs> they're busy. And they're like, oh, I don't know you. Who are you? <laughs> but, but no, if the dentist cares, they'll give you time. They'll talk to you. If the dentist cares, and that's actually that's a, that's a good that's a good first uh, checkpoint to see if 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 you're a new patient and you'd like to speak to the dentist and the dentist blows you off, well maybe you should look for a different dentist because <laughs> that's a good sign that they're willing to give you some time to answer some questions. Uh, yeah. that, that that's the start of a relationship that that where trust can be built, a foundation can start of trusting and knowing someone. And, and, and feel less nervous, you know, less apprehensive. Because, let's face it, two, two strangers, how, how comfortable are you supposed to be when a complete stranger is working on your mouth? And uh, so I have a couple, I have some rapid fire questions for you that I always ask people. Um, what is your guilty pleasure for food? Chocolate. Yeah, dentist, I love chocolate. Chocolate's my friend. It's one of the major food groups, man. <laughs> What is left on your bucket list? Oh boy, left my bucket list. Well, I'd like to do more travel around the world. There's some some major sites and things I'd like to see, 
and there's a list of countries I like to see. So it's not a simple one one off. Um, I know when I was young, I used to think about doing a parachute jump. But when I got through college and all my education invested in my head, the last thing I want to do is jump out of a plane and get hurt. And then I can't practice and enjoy the career I worked so hard for. But, you know, maybe I'll do that in a few more years. I'm, right now, I'm enjoying my career. I'm not at the end of my clinical practicing days yet, but but I would still consider doing a parachute jump. Okay, and what advice would the older self give the younger self? Oh boy, you know what? <clears throat> I wish I tried harder earlier in school because, as I've mentioned before, I was a I was a bum. I was lazy. I was angling on how can I get through this with minimal effort. And I was good at it too. Um, I I know I, I must have mentioned to you the story of my teacher, my trigonometry teacher, Mr. Hansen. I wish I'd met that man earlier in my life. Um, I saw him walking around campus in high school for three years. I could tell by the way he walked, his posture, his demeanor, the way he spoke. I thought that's a military guy. I can tell. I bet he's a Vietnam vet, and I bet his class is all work. No fun, no joking around, no relaxed time. I don't want to be in his class. And I signed up for trigonometry. And, and, and uh, I was thinking, oh, no, this is that guy. I don't want to be in this class. I got to figure out where am I going to go. I got to transfer out of this class. But, but after the first day of class, he changed my mind. Um, and he was the most influential teacher in my life. Uh, as far as teachers go, I mean, my father was greatly influential in my upbringing, in my life, in many ways. But as far as formal instruction, Mr. Hansen, James Hansen, was was the best teacher. I wish that I met him in my freshman year, because before long, he became the one teacher that I worked harder than anyone else ever to do his work, to do what he asked and not disappoint. I didn't want to disappoint him. And, and I worked hard for, for his approval. I never felt that way about anyone before. He won me over in the first day of class. And I just wish that I didn't operate on that first impression, which was so wrong about him. Oh, well, yeah, I was right. He was a military guy and he was all strict, all no nonsense in the class. That's exactly right. I was correct. My, my assessment of him was correct on, on, on seeing him, observing him from afar. But once I got in his classroom, holy cow, he changed me. He was the guy, and I told him, I've told him, he's retired now, but I've spoken to him. And I told him, you're the person who reached into my head and turned on the power switch and then broke off the knob. And I could never thank you enough for that because you changed me. I just wish I met that man in my first year in high school. I would have been a different person probably, but but I, I met him just in time before it was too late, and he was able to change my life, and I've become a better person for it. And what would you tell your dad if you could tell your dad something? You know, your dad passed away not, not, not too long ago. If you had him in front of you, you could say a couple last words to your father. Uh, what would they be? Thank you for everything, man. It's the most important person that shaped me, brought me along, taught me 
and provided me with everything I needed to make my life and to go out in the world and do my thing. And, you know, he wasn't a real complimentary guy. I mean, when I finished high school, I didn't even get a pat on the back. When I finished college, yeah, big deal. You know, he wasn't one to throw out compliments. It's just the way he was. Now, I don't, I don't dislike him for that. Um, that's just the way he was. He actually, I think, became hardened when he came to this country and had to do so many things and endure so many difficulties by himself with no help. But he got through, and he was determined to make it. And that made him a strong person. You know, in in my entire life, um, I I've never I never saw him cry. I never saw him shed a tear. I never saw that. He never cried. Two things about him. He never cried, and he never got sick. He never caught a cold. He never got the flu. He had never got sick any anytime, anywhere, for anything. But but no, I I you know, I, I thanked him, but you know what? It, I could say it a thousand times. I'll never get tired of saying it because the sentiment is true. What he what what my father did for me, the the, the part in my life that he that he uh, was there for in shaping me and preparing me. Um, you know, I'm glad that I'm glad that my mom my mom was there too. I don't mean to diminish the presence of my mother. It's just that I, I did have a closer relationship with my father, but I was lucky enough to have two great solid parents and a good foundation in my home. But but my dad worked hard uh, and he made sacrifices. And the sacrifices he made for were for us three kids. Well, he told I, many times that everything he's doing, everything my mom and dad were doing was for us. So to have parents like that, gosh, that I don't, my friends, I don't ever hear, remember my friends that I grew up with talking about their parents like that or their parents saying things like that. Well, you know, we're, we're here for you all the time. Everything is for you. And you no, know, my, my, my dad, my dad was a true altruist. If, if my life was on the line, he would sacrifice his life so that I could continue living. That wasn't even, that wasn't even a question. So the thing is that that was a true altruist and the, the greatest person in my corner. And he was always me, there for me. And let me tell you, I, knowing your mom and dad are amazing people. And so, are, so your brother and sister are great people as well. They, they raised amazing people. He had an amazing family, and I'm going to miss him greatly. Uh, and one of the one of the most smart guys I ever met in my life, and he was so so witty. And um, I'm going to tell you a couple things about you real quick. Is is the audience doesn't know is is you overcame a pretty serious accident a while back ago, a car accident, and through that entire time, you continued to work. <laughs> <laughs> and you continue to rehab and you continue to run your business. And it was a sign of resilience that I really, really don't understand how you got through it with that, got, got through it, but you did. And that's a testament to you. But one of the other stories I have to tell you is um, when you talk about a mathematical uh, mind, and I'm going to ask you one last question after this, but uh, I remember going to your house one time and you had a, a, a bunch of piles of numbers on your table, just 
just just a ton of numbers. And I said, what's that for? You said, well, I, I don't use computers or anything um, when I gamble, if I, when I do gamble, and I don't I don't bet that much. I, I actually write down uh, statistics and numbers, and I actually do formulas so that when I go play, uh, I it gives me a better uh, opportunity to win. And I remember there was in your business one time, you said, you, you told me, you said, hey, uh, I don't know if I'm going to make payroll, you know, because your oh. business was, your, your business was starting. And you said, I don't know if I'm going to be able to make payroll or not. And I said, oh, and I remember the payroll was actually due like on a Monday or Tuesday of the week coming up. So I remember leaving and you went down to a casino and you played, um, you bet on college football games. Yeah, that was um, that was a weekend that you came to visit here, and I had, I had, um, I made ten three dollar parlay bets. This was in October of two thousand three. I, I just opened my my office in in the end of March, and the beginning was tough. Uh, I was I was getting by on a shoestring budget every time, and and payroll was always cutting it close, and. This time you came to visit that weekend, and I thought that, you know, unless more checks come in the mail, uh, I, I cannot make payroll on Monday. I mean, I can write a check, but I got to ask my employees, don't cash this yet. It's going to bounce um, until I can deposit more money. But, uh, <clears throat> yeah, you, you came down that weekend, and I bet on college football games on Saturday and then Sunday pro football games, and I identified – 12 games that I thought the casino sportsbook was giving generous points more than I thought they should be. So out of those 12 games, I used 10 of them to put together 10 parlay cards. Some were three picks, some were five, six, seven, eight, and a 10 pick. And at the end of the games on Saturday, you know, I'd picked everything right. So all the cards are still in play. And then Sunday morning, you know, more games are finishing. And then there were just like, I guess, uh, a couple more games. But I was winning on everything. And I, I some were, winner, were already winners where I could collect uh, payment for getting a perfect card. And and I, uh, when the last game, last games were finished, I ended up getting everything perfect. All 10 of those parlay cards were perfect. A 10 for 10. And... When I when I went to, went to cash those tickets in, and the guy ran the the ten for ten parlay card in the scanner, it stopped, and he said, "Hold on." He had to get the the um, supervisor. Supervisor asked. He looked at see what it was, and then he asked for my ID, and he said, uh, "Well, that's a big win there. Um, yeah, I, I bet I made a three dollar bet, and it paid eight fifty to one times three, so it was twenty five hundred and fifty bucks on the ten for ten parlay." Along with the other nine, I turned thirty dollars into forty two hundred and seventy eight dollars, and I made payroll. <laughs> and, I, and I remember. And I asked. I asked the guy. I asked the guy. Well, I guess this doesn't happen very often. And the guy goes, "No." I says, "Well, how often do you see this during the course of the football season?" He says, "Oh, maybe three or four times." Holy cow! You know, for for people who don't believe there's a God. Uh, there's a God. He gave me a break. He, he turned a kind eye to me and helped me. 
And 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 you know what? When the guy was counting out that stack of twenty five hundred dollar bills, that smart Alec says, "Well, enjoy this. You'll never do this again." You know, I thought <laughs> sob. I want to. I thought I'd like to do this again, and I'm going to come back to this booth, and I'm going to make sure that you're the guy that reads my card, so you remember me. I'm going to be back. And I was well, determined I, to do it again. And you know what? Six weeks later, six weeks later, I, I decided, you know, instead of doing $3 on the 10 for 10 parlay, I'm going to do five. So it pays better. It pays 4000 what, 4250 And I thought, you know what? Just for good measure, I'll do two of them, two fivers, just to rub it in. So six weeks later, uh, I've got my 10 pick. Eight games are in the books, and I'm perfect on both of them. I'm watching the last two games. Going into the fourth quarter, I am winning, man. I'm thinking I'm going to go back there. I'm going to wipe that smile off that dude's face. And get into the second half of the fourth quarter, and, and the teams had some leads, and the coaches pulled out the starters, put in some other guys. They gave up some, some scores in the last, like, 90 seconds or two minutes, and I lost those two. And I thought, man, you know what? I almost had it, but I, I decided that, you know what it is? The first time I got the three for the three dollar parlay bet, God gave me a break. He was there in my corner, and he helped me. I needed help, and he was there for me. Now, I was going to abuse it. I wanted to get. I wanted to wipe the smile off that guy's face, and this is a misappropriation of of this gift. And I just wanted to do it just to get him. <laughs> and well, the big guy upstairs didn't let that happen. <laughs> well, let me, let me ask you this. Um, Here's my last question I always end with is, what do you want to be remembered for in life? Oh, boy. Well, <clears throat> I think it'd be nice to be remembered as, as, a, as an honest man who cared about others and worked hard and did the right thing. And um, well, I guess, I don't know. Is there much more? Just Just... Live a good, clean life and had good friends, good family, and uh, took care of people when he could. Yeah. Well, I have to tell you, thank you so, so much, um, Dr. Gallimore, for being on the show today. It's been a real honor. I've, I've asked you for a while. I, I had to grab you tonight because I knew I would never be able to get a hold of you just because you're very, very busy. Um, if anybody wants to get a hold of you, what's the best way to get a hold of you for consultation or if they need, if they need a dentist? Uh, or they just need to have a nice conversation with somebody that does it, that's done amazing things. What's the best way to get a hold of your website, your phone number, so forth? Well, I, I do have a website, 702dentist.com. Um, I can be reached probably most easily by text, you know. Um, the thing is that if, if you, you can call, you can call 702-DENTIST, 702-336-8478, but most of the time, that call those those calls are forwarded to the front desk in the office because um, I'm uh, I use that number for marketing, uh, but I can be reached by text on that number because that's my cell phone number. So I can be reached by by text. That's the best way to reach me because then you you can send me a message and I can call you right back. Uh, fortunately, uh, because of the internet, long distance calling is zero. <laughs> you can call across the country. You can call across the world. And it's zero cents a minute. So uh, texting is easy. Calling is easy if, if you have WhatsApp, for example. Uh, but probably texting is the easiest way to reach me. 
personally, then I can call back if you had questions. Otherwise, um, you can call you can call 702-336-8478, uh, which is the office number when I'm in the office. When I leave the office, I take the call forwarding off, and the calls are supposed to come to my cell phone. But oh. I'm accessible. I'm not hiding. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for listening, everyone. If you like the podcast, please give it a thumbs up. Please give it good reviews. And join me next week for another amazing guest. Thank you, Glenn, so much. Have a great night, everybody. Thank, thank, thank you, Martin. It's been thank a real you. privilege to be here. And, and uh, I, I'm in impressive company. Thank you. <laughs> and keep learning, everybody. Take care. Have a great night.